Our sermon text for today is 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and I encourage you to find that place. We'll pick up the reading about the middle of the chapter, verse 10. So 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. Today, as has been mentioned earlier in the service, we're concluding a four-part series on prayer. We've looked at three aspects of prayer thus far that it is primarily about the glorification of Jesus, week one, that we are to engage with God in prayer primarily on the basis of His Word, week two, praying Scripture or scripturally informed praying. And then last Sunday, to be filled with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. To pray always in the Spirit from the book of Jude. Well, today's focus is on another unique aspect of prayer, and that is the togetherness of it. Today we're not thinking about personal praying, we're thinking about corporate praying. And the title of today's sermon is Amplifying Our Voices in Prayer, Exalting Christ Together. With that, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, hear the word of the only God. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. It lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank You and praise Your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from You. And from Your hand we have given You. For we are sojourners before You in tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. and There is no hope. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build a house for Your holy name, it is from Your hand, and all is Yours. Since I know, O oh my God, that You try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy, I have seen Your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to You. Verse 18. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our fathers. Preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. And give my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. 
And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the King. The Word of the Lord. Would you join me as we try to engage in that very prayer by offering our hearts to the Lord in prayer together. Join me as we pray. Father, we bless Your name. We hallow Your name. As You did in this prayer, by Your Spirit, through David, we ask that for all of us, You would even now pull back the same veil and allow us to see Your majestic character and the all-surpassing beauty of Your Son. We ask not only that You would allow us to understand something of the passage that is in front of us, but especially to be caught up in it that we would join this prayer as we bless Your glorious name together as our forefathers did in verse 20. Cause us to be raptured in prayer together as we seek Your lovely face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today may seem a little awkward because we're going to talk, as we've done for three weeks, about prayer instead of engaging in it for most of the time uh, that we're together. But if you've been here for a little over an hour, then you know that most of the time we've spent up until this point has been dedicated to the vertical prayerfulness. But that's okay because God gives us plenty of instruction about prayer, and this is one instruction by way of example. There are three things that I would like to draw out. The first is just a very simple background sketch to this passage. And the second are two points from the passage. The first point will be a zoom in on what happened. The second point will be a zoom out on how it fits into the bigger story of Scripture. But first, background to the passage, I assume, as we like to joke about ourselves and kind of do the self-deprecating humor, right? If you're going to laugh at somebody, laugh at yourself. Um, And uh, we like to laugh at ourselves. And so one of the ways we do that is to say that this passage falls in one of those clean, white, stuck-together places of the pages of our Bible. First Chronicles. What is that about? Well, let's do a little background, assuming that not all of us are on the same page about this book or these two books, First and Second Chronicles. One overview that I read this week about these two books put in one sentence, I think, a really faithful summary of the two books. First and Second Chronicles are designed to assure the returning Jews from the Babylonian captivity that in spite of their checkered past and their present plight, God will be true to His covenant promises. Now, that may sound like preachy talk, but that's a very good summary of the material in First and Second Chronicles. The outline of both of those books is pretty simple. They were originally one book, and many believe, and I would tend to agree, that they're written by Ezra, the prophet, but that would be uh, around 450, long after these events had taken place, about a thousand years before Jesus, written down roughly 500 years before Jesus, but that just gives you the timeline. But the outline of the two books, as I said, is pretty simple. First Chronicles has three parts. Second Chronicles has 
three parts. The three parts to First Chronicles are a genealogy. That's our book for today, First Chronicles. First nine chapters, a genealogy from Adam to David. The chronicler wanted to record how we got to King David. So for nine chapters, that's what he does. Then, from chapters 9 to 12, he describes the ascent of David to the throne. The rise of David as king. How did all that unfold in human history in a way that can be documented and studied and verified? So the chronicler does that, verses 9 to 12. And then, the portion we're in, we're in the last chapter of the first, uh, of first Chronicles. Chapters 13 to 29 talk about David's reign as king. So the genealogy, the rise to the kingdom, and his reign as king. That's the three parts of First Chronicles. Second Chronicles carries on the same story, and it was, as I mentioned, originally one book, and the three parts are this. Chapters 1-9 to of Second Chronicles are about the reign of Solomon. That's David's son. Chapters 10-36 to of Second Chronicles are about the reigns of all sorts of other kings. Particularly in Judah, the southern kingdom. The chronicler focuses on Judah. There's a, a number of reasons for that, but these kings, some good, some bad, chapters 10 to 36 of 2 Chronicles tell you about them. And then finally, in chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, you get the proclamation of Cyrus, the Persian king, for the Jews to return from captivity and rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. And uh, that's a basic outline of 1 and 2 Chronicles. But in our chapter, if you've got any more bandwidth to do a little bit of background work, you need to get this one. Our chapter, 1 Chronicles 29, is a key turning point. Not just in the book of Chronicles, but in the whole Bible. The reason it's a key turning point is because we are on the precipice of the death of King David. That's what happens at the very end of the book. You can see that in 1 Chronicles 29. And just prior to the death of David, he reasserts that Solomon, this is the second time it happens, is to be installed as king. So install Solomon, David dies. That's the end of 1 Chronicles. Right prior to that is the passage we're considering where David prays this prayer in the company of all of Israel in preparation for the construction of the temple which David in the previous chapters has spent much of his kingdom preparing for. So been preparing for the temple. Now he prays a prayer of dedication that that temple would be used to the glory of God. David knows that his death is imminent. He therefore gathers the people together. He leads them in a corporate prayer of dedication for the future temple and to designate his son Solomon as king. Well, that's the background in a very, very brief sketch. Now to dig in to two points. One, zooming in on the passage, and two, zooming out on how it fits in the whole Bible. First, verses 10 to 13, corporate praying amplifies our voices. That's why the sermon title is Amplifying Our Voices in Prayer, Exalting Christ Together. If you knew that there was a way for your prayer to be heard if you could put it this way, more. Would you do whatever it took? Would you crawl over broken glass to get to the destination? Would you walk across a minefield to get to the finish line? If you knew for sure that if you got to that place, your prayer would definitely be heard. 
Well, I hope that any believing heart would say, yes. In Scripture, we find not only in this prayer, but in a series of prayers, Old and New Testament, that are offered corporately, that there's a guarantee that God hears the collective voices of His people in a way that's different than our personal private praying. Not to diminish one, or to overemphasize the other. Both are part of our dedication to Jesus. Well, corporate praying amplifies, amplifies our voices. Let's zoom in on verses 10 to 13. Notice the corporate nature of verse 10. David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. In the sight of all the assembly. Well, that's just the very basic, doesn't take really deep insight to figure out. This prayer is happening publicly in the sight of all the assembly. Before we just jump right into the content of what David prays and how the people are caught up into the content of that prayer, let's just be reminded of the ricochet effect of revelation of God and our response to Him. What I mean is this prayer that responds to God's character as we're about to look at more closely is really the ricochet response of God revealing Himself to His people. And you can be sure that if God reveals Himself to you, one irresistible response like the mist that rises from the plunging waterfall, one irresistible response if God truly reveals Himself to you will be your response back to Him extolling His character. Praising Him for who He is and for what He has done. So this is a revelation and response moment. David is not showing off his self-righteousness. He's not using big fancy words so that everybody will be impressed with him and how good he is at articulating his prayers. He was seeking to do something. And he did it in public on purpose. And the something that he was seeking to do was to help his loved ones be caught up with him in the wonder of God. That is really the baseline of public corporate prayer that is biblically pleasing to God. Seeking to help our loved ones be caught up with us into the wonder of God. That's what corporate prayer ought to do. Well, I just want to make a confession right out of the gate before we look at some of the details of David's prayer. I often walk in here with a cold heart. I mean, my assignment is usually to study as best I can and to pray as best I know how over the passage that we're going to consider together as a church. But even that is not a surefire guarantee that I'm not going to walk in here with a cold heart. And oftentimes I do. But I cannot tell you how unbroken God's track record is. How impeccable His record is that if I will just show up and humble myself, that's a key parenthetical statement. Humble myself. Humility is simply expressing need for God. I need you. You're not a plus. You're not a bonus. You're not a good idea. You're not a beneficial addendum to my already good life. You are essential. I need you. 
Okay, if I will humble myself, even if I have a cold heart, I have found that if I'll put one little stick of the kindling of life into the prayer that somebody else offers in this room publicly, it's instantly caught ablaze with the glory of God. Some of you have experienced that. I would say I experienced it today. I don't know if you know, I'm not trying to grade our prayers or our prayer meeting. We don't get B's or C's or A's on our prayer meetings. But today started really slow. Can we just acknowledge that? It was just super slow. A lot of silence. I personally don't believe that that's the biblical pattern for corporate prayer, and we ought not have big chunks of silence unless an elder says we're going to sit silently before the Lord for a few moments do that. I think that's good, and it ought to happen. That's just not what corporate prayer is. But today was slow. But then, but then, <laughs> but then it was not slow. And when the kindling of my cold heart touched the flame of somebody else's passion for Jesus, my heart got hot. And I didn't utter one prayer audibly today. I offered a lot of them silently. <laughs> That's what's happening in this passage. And it happens in so many passages in Scripture. When the fire of another brother's or sister's passion for the glory of God touches the dry or cold parts of our souls, we're consumed all over again with the brilliance of our God and the beauty of His Gospel love for us. Before David dies, he wanted once again to let people put their life into the fire of His love for the King. One thing we learn from this prayer as we look now at verses 10 to 13 is that when we know God experientially, biblically, based on his own self revelation, when we know him, you can guarantee something's going to happen to you. There are consequences to truly experiencing God. Some of you haven't experienced him. And so, what I'm about to say sounds like a foreign language. But those of you who have experienced God revealing Himself to you through His own revelation in His Word, when that happens and David shows it, God irresistibly begins to ooze out of you. Look at the descriptions of God's character in this prayer. I'm using the New American Standard. Yours may be worded a little differently. I've compared a bunch of translations leading up to today to just see how they all do it. I'll just point out one distinction from some translations, uh, not from all of them, but just from one of the phrases. Verse 10, you are the Lord God of Israel. That's the way he begins his prayer. Don't just skip over that little phrase. The word Lord here is God's covenant name. It is Jehovah, Yahweh. It's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. The people that He chose for Himself. That's who they're addressing. The one true God. And in verse 10, astonishingly, David extols Him personally, intimately, as our Father. You see what David's doing? He's not asking God for anything. He's not making one request yet. He is simply blessing God for who He is. That He is the one true God, the Lord. That He is a personal God, our Father. Number three, that He is great, powerful, 
glorious, victorious, majestic, owner of everything in the heavens and on earth, that everything is under His domain. Wow, we could take another hundred sermons and just try to meditate on each of those descriptions of who God is and how He exerts His infinite perfections in the world. David is seeking to catch these people up into the flame of the fire of the purity and brilliance and brightness of God. But the phrase at the end of verse 11 is one I want to do some comparison on between different translations. The New American Standard that I'm reading from at the end of verse 11 says, and I quote, you exalt yourself as head over all. The ESV says, O Lord, and You are exalted as head above all. The King James, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Most translations, translations render it that way. The NAS renders it, You exalt Yourself. Do you hear that? In comparison to, You are exalted. Now both are true. I did as much digging as I could through sources and looking at the original Hebrew and doing use of tools and so forth, and my basic conclusion is it could faithfully be translated either way. But really, as you meditate on it in context, you see that it's really one and the same. Who is doing the exalting of the one true God? You read this prayer in context, it's unequivocally God. God is the one doing the God-exalting. He's the one putting in the heart of David to pray such a prayer. This prayer is happening, as we know now, written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we could get there logically, we could get there theologically, but you can get there textually. And the New American Standard puts it in the most explicit possible way to be faithful to the words that were written. You exalt yourself as head over all. Have you ever praised Him for that? It's one of the deepest fountains I know of in the whole Bible. That God is the most God-centered person in the universe. And that is the best news possible for you. The most loving thing God could do for you or for me is to be gloriously God-centered. Years ago in 1997 at a big conference in Texas with college students, John Piper said, your God-centeredness rests squarely on God's God-centeredness. And I just thought, what in the world is this man talking about? And then I kept bumping into passages and prayers, extillations of God and phrases of worship or commendations to other people about the character of God through the Old and the New Testament. And I find phrases like David's praying, you exalt yourself as head over all. We've said it before, and I pray that I won't tire of saying it again. And oh, that God would help me with the tongue of an angel to say it better than this. But I want to say as clearly as I know how, the Gospel is not the good news that God will get excited about you if you will agree to get excited about Him. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is not that God will be you-centered if you will agree to be God-centered. That is not the Gospel. 
The Gospel is not that Jesus will make much of you. If you'll make much of Jesus, we could go on and on with similar types of phrases. The good news is what David's saying in the company of all the people. God is gloriously self-exalting. And as I said a moment ago, that's the best news in the universe for you because the Gospel fundamentally is the good news that God has sent His Son to set you and me free from our myopic self-centeredness. We were self-deifiers. We love ourselves. Nobody has to teach us to pamper self. We're born in eight in a sinful way with that depraved, inward, concave focus. Me first. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, He wasn't saying love yourself more so you'll know how to love your neighbor better. He was saying, you got that down pat. You're good at that. Now do that for other people. Not you. And God is the most God-centered person in the universe. And in the Gospel, He says, I'll set you free from your self-focus. I'll set you free from your insidious self-exaltation so that you can join me in the happiest place in the universe. That is the much-making of God. That's what David's doing. He's extolling the God who is and the God who is exalted. And in verse 12, he continues, God is endowed with riches from which all others derive their well-being. Everything you have has come from His hand. Everything that touches you has been filtered through His fingers of love. He is, in verse 12, the sole ruler of all peoples. He alone possesses all power. And the verse says, all might. It is entirely owing to His prerogative alone. He consults nobody. He calls no conferences to figure out what to do with the end of verse 12. It is His prerogative alone to make great and strengthen everyone. He is totally sovereign. That's who He is. When we stumble upon these truths, it doesn't become who He is. It's just Him hooking us and reeling us in to the beauty of what He's always known. And in verse 13, to sum it all up, His name is glorious. His name represents His character. If you've never done a meditation on the names of God, I cannot commend it to you highly enough. It ought to be a regular routine to latch on to the names of God as He describes Himself throughout the Scriptures. Each name having a specific focus or aspect or attribute of His character. His name is glorious. His name represents the totality of who He is in all of His infinite perfections. And David just sums it all up by saying, everything about you is wonderful. Have you noticed he has made a grand total of zero requests? All praise. All honor. Corporate prayer, I'm saying, has a unique capacity to ignite God-exalting praise in the hearts of other people. Everyone, we know because it's written for us in the passage, was caught up into God's excellence and majesty as a result of David's prayer. We'll get there, but it's obviously in verse 20. Here's the inescapable deal about a real walk with Jesus. And I just want to underline the word real. A real walk with Jesus, when you know Him, His character begins to saturate your entire worldview. 
The beauty of a God-centered God begins to inflame your heart. And you begin to find phrases that come out of the lips of Jesus in the Gospels that resonate more deeply with you than anything you've ever thought in your life. And you, like Jesus, begin praising and glorifying His Father in agreement with His nature. Like when Jesus prays the night before He's crucified, Oh, righteous Father. What a prayer. And you, with the Son, begin to say, that's my Father. This is my Redeemer. Or when Jesus, tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, was told, if you bow down and worship Me, I give you all the kingdoms of the earth. To which Jesus said to Satan, quoting Scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. You tell me who Jesus worships. Jesus is the most God-centered person who's ever stepped foot on the planet. Which is why His praise was unpolluted. He was always resounding in Godward devotion. Loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was always seeking to ignite the people around him into his own Godward praise to put the kindling of their life into the inferno of his own passion for the Lord. That's what's going on in David's prayer. It's the primary way we know that God, this is the primary way God oozes out of our soul. Response back to God. Not impressing the people around us. Who we are, it has been said many times and said well, who we are on our knees before God is who we are and nothing more. The goal is not to be a Bible know-it-all in front of other people. It is to ricochet back in vertical response to our King. We cannot overlook the fact that David did not want to enjoy this God all by Himself, so He prays, as verse 10 says, in the sight of all the assembly. He wanted to make sure they all heard Him. And in verse 20, as I've just alluded to, we'll look at now, then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the King. To whom did David say this? Answer in the verse, all the assembly. I just want to get super practical as best I know how, knowing this is our, our last focused effort in this prayer series. Super practical. Listen, I know we're all so gloriously different. That is such a good thing. How miserable would this world be if everybody was like me? What a boring place. What a terrible world to live in. We are so gloriously different. That's a good thing. It's part of God's endless creativity. God sovereignly designed each person. I believe that goes all the way down to the intangibles, including your personality. No one is going to be ready to beat you with a stick for being a little more reticent than the next person to pray out loud in a setting like this. That's not what we're talking about. Guilt tripping everybody until you all feel terrible that you don't pray aloud enough. That's not what this sermon's about. And for what it's worth, 
I want to commend you all right, out of the, right off the bat to say you're either gluttons for punishment or you're sincerely interested in knowing and following the Lord or you wouldn't be here. Gluttons for punishment, are, we all know we stink at our prayer life. We all know we're not good at it. So if you come here to hear another sermon on prayer, you're either a glutton for punishment, like bludgeon me again with how terrible I am, or you sincerely want to follow the Lord. And I have good reason to believe it's the latter. I also happen to know your pastors pretty well. And I'm also a direct beneficiary of the rich, gospel-saturated diet that we are fed on a regular basis. So what I'm trying to say is this, before we move on from all the assembly blessed the Lord. I know enough about this church to know this. This is the safest place on planet earth for you to learn how to exercise the muscle of faith to express your heart to God in the company of the saints. I believe that. It's the safest place on the planet for you to learn how to exercise the muscle of faith in expressing your heart to God in the company of the saints. What I mean is nobody's going to look down on you for your public expression of God-praising prayer. Nobody. It's a safe place for you to figure out how to exercise that muscle whether you're a member or not. Whether you're an adult or child. Whether you're male or female. This is a safe place for you to learn how to exercise the muscle of faith to express your heart to God in the company of the saints. I would go further. If you cannot pray freely here, I cannot think of another place in the universe that you would be able to do that. Where is a more safe place if this is not safe enough? This is a safe place to praise and glorify the Lord together. And that includes our praying. And that's what happened in verse 20. David said, alright, it's your turn. And they said, wonderful. We, could, we were trying to figure out when you were going to give us a shot. If we can't get to God out loud right here among His people, where on earth can we do it? Verse 10, I'm going to praise Him while you agree. Verse 20, you're going to praise Him while we all agree. I've benefited from friendships and mentorships with older godly saints. One of them I was with, uh, by God's grace, two weeks ago. An 88-year-old dear brother who's been to our church a number of times, Richard Owen Roberts, who said to our elders the year our church was beginning, we weren't even officially a church yet, he said, and I wrote down the quote, and I talked to him about it two weeks ago, so I wrote it down 14 years ago, and I talked to him about it two weeks ago. I'm concerned... Robert said, for the conversion, we're talking salvation now, of any church member who misses the prayer meeting for reasons other than providential hindrance. Yikes. I'm concerned, I'll put salvation, I'm concerned for the salvation of any church member who misses the church's prayer meeting for reasons other than providential hindrance. Wait, what? what? Why would you be concerned about their salvation? Now, has he totally fallen off the boat into legalism? Well, before I seek to answer that question, 
Let me read from somebody else. This is Samuel Bopery, pastor in Venukonda, India, who's been here a couple of times. He preached in this pulpit just a couple of years ago. I keep up with Samuel and pray for his work there in Venukonda. And in one of his newsletters, he wrote this sentence. Quote, The midweek prayer meeting is not well attended. Please pray that the church members may be convicted of this sin and repent and return to prayer with their brothers and sisters. Have we totally fallen off the boat into being a bunch of Pharisees and legalists to talk about absence from a prayer meeting as a sin issue or reason to be concerned about each other's salvation? Let's let the New Testament speak. Speaking to the whole church in Rome. You all, Romans 12, be devoted to prayer. It's a command. At Pentecost, when the Spirit came, the very first expression of the church, 3,000 people get saved. First thing they do, let's pray. Before that, Acts 1, 120 people in an upper room, by my math, for 10 days between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. Day 40 to day 50. 10 days, 120 people seeking God's face together in prayer. It's about the size of this group. In Acts 12.5, when Peter's in prison, what does the whole church do? They call a prayer meeting and quote, prayer was being made on His behalf by the whole church. Okay, so there's a pattern in the New Testament and we can't deny it. When people get saved, people get together and those together people who are saved start praying. Samuel said in the Old Testament, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord, 1 Samuel 12.23, by ceasing to pray for you. So yes, prayerlessness is clearly sinfulness And the reason, Roberts would say things like, I'm concerned about people's salvation who for reasons other than providential hindrance missed the prayer meeting. Like, too tired, slept in, stayed up too late the night before, didn't really think about it, not a big deal. I went two times this month, what's the other two? That kind of spirit. If you think about this as an incentive, if you're a Christian today, I don't know how many of you are and how many of you are not, God knows, but if you're a Christian today, it is largely owing to the fact that you are a product of answered prayer. What I mean is, who knows how many people prayed for you before you came to Christ? Probably thousands of people. No doubt the godly people in your family, in your heritage before you. Grandmothers and cousins, maybe pastors, neighbors, or perhaps as you were just a little person on a tricycle on the sidewalk and somebody passed down the street and never even knew your name or stopped to talk to you, maybe a saintly sister prayed, God, one day would you save that little boy? Countless thousands of people and loved ones rose in prayer to God on your behalf and you're here today not because you're good at Christianity, but because you're the product of answered prayer. That's why you're here. Wouldn't you want to be part of that mighty river of God's grace that's still flowing into the lives of a bunch of other people? Folks may just start getting saved in the middle of the prayer meeting if we will die to our inhibitions, pray that God will strip us of our self-centeredness, and we actually get together with one goal. One goal. Seek God's face. Period. That's it. If we do that, 
I've never been to a church that the Bible says will happen to churches that do that. And I'm so encouraged. i got a note on that to come in just a minute. I'm so encouraged by what God's doing here. More on that in a moment. But I've never been to a church that experiences what God's Word said would, it, would happen when churches start seeking God's face together like that. It's in 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, when the whole assembly, now I'm in 1 Chronicles 29 20, when everybody prophesies, 1 Corinthians 14, declares boldly the truth of God, how does everybody do that in a meeting? It's either through song or prayer. Not everybody preaching at the same time. Not everybody talking to each other at the same time. That's indecipherable. But prayer and preaching. When everybody is prophesying, boldly declaring the truth of God, unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14, will walk in that room, fall on their face, and say, and I quote, certainly God is among you. I was on a phone call Friday with one of our members who moved off to go to seminary in Kentucky, Chris Hall, and he said, unbeknownst to me, that two weeks ago, a couple, man-woman, fellow seminary students visited our church. I didn't know that until Friday, but they were here two weeks ago when Nathan Sawyer preached on Acts chapter 4. They went back to Louisville. I don't know why they were in Memphis. They went back to Louisville. Chris tells me, in short, that after the service, they sat back middle, and they didn't move. Stunned silence. As a seminary student who's several years into his academic journey studying God's Word seriously, he and his wife sat there in stunned silence and Chris told me that they said to him, that's the closest thing we've ever seen to a New Testament church. What was that prayer meeting? And they meant it positively. <laughs> they didn't mean it negatively. So I am very encouraged. But if we'll go hard after God together, if we'll go hard after God together, knowing that we're in the safest place in the universe. And when somebody stands up, David in First Chronicles or one of our elders in Grace Church stands up and says, now it's your turn. Bless the Lord. And there's no inhibition and there's only one goal. The face of God. If lost people are in here, and there may be some today who feel exactly what I'm about to say, they'll tremble. Because they'll know that there's a cavern between themselves and God that they cannot cross without divine intervention. Let me ask you another question. Why do you love the Lord? I hope you could come up with a billion reasons. But the Bible gives you one of them in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. I love Him because... He hears my voice. has to be one of the most stunning truths in the universe. That the sovereign potentate listens to little bitty me, and He does. As accepted as Christ is in His presence, so accepted are all those who are in Christ. Your voice is not any less significant in His ear than the voice of His Son as you come to Him through His Son. Prayer is astonishing not only because God hears, He definitely does hear, because it's, but because it's also part of the way He grows us. That's why sermon application is not that big of a deal to me. If you hadn't noticed, I'm not, I'm not good at it, but I'm also not big on it. Seven points or twelve points or fifteen points on how to go home and do this, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. I could give you a list of seven things. I'm not opposed to that. 
I actually have eight today. I don't know if I'll say them or not. I usually do have about that many, and I very rarely say them. But I know this. If you get zero points of application, zero, but you meet with God, you will be different. You can't recreate the work of the Holy Spirit. And you can't manufacture it. But if we come together with one purpose, unity of mind, unity of heart, seek the face of God together. If we do that, the Holy Spirit loves to dance in that collection of people and show off the glory of Christ in ways that we can never recreate. William Cooper said, why don't we pray? He said, do you not have any words? He said, oh, think again. Words flow apace when you complain and fill your fellow creatures ear with the sad tale of all your care. you got plenty of words when it comes time to complain. Why so few words when it comes time to pray? Cooper goes on to say, were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, our cheerful song would oftener be, hear what the Lord has done for me. I want us to see that in this prayer, it's a corporate praising. Even everything they render back to God, the preparations for the temple, the lavish provisions, all that's a gift from His hand. It's totally a picture of redemption. Finally and briefly, not only does corporate prayer amplify our voices, lastly, it magnifies our mediator. Corporate praying magnifies our mediator. This is where we zoom out. I've done that in a number of ways already, but from 1 Chronicles 29, please let us not miss the fact who is praying and where they're at. This is King David. This is on the precipice of the preparation of the building of the temple. David is not just the average person in Israel. He is the king. And the temple about which he is praying and consecrating and dedicating to the Lord in this prayer is the place where God's priests will represent God's people before God. This is where the sacrifices are going to happen. And so if we need to be reminded again, I'm happy to do it, that the hero of any Old Testament story is not you or me. It's not David or Moses or Elijah. David was a significant man, but he was certainly a man and a man of clay feet. He was a sinful man. We all know his checkered story. But he was the king of God's people in a particular point in redemptive history and his life and his role as king pointed to Christ. David is a type of Christ in this prayer. The ESV Study Bible says this prayer marks the climax of his reign. Like the most important thing he did. What's he doing in this prayer? He's taking God's people into God's presence and extolling God's majesty as the King. What David is foreshadowing is precisely what Jesus came to accomplish. When in Hebrews 7, Jesus is the true and greater King, the Melchizedek. But He's also the priest who makes the sacrifice in the temple of Himself, not on earth, but in heaven. In Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is always interceding for us. And in 9.24 of Hebrews, He is always before the face of God for us. Or in Romans chapter 8, the great 8, four things are said about Jesus in verse 34. He died, He was raised, He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He intercedes for us. David is doing that. 
David is a shadow. Christ is the substance. One more time from the ESV study Bible about this passage. It seems clear that the chronicler understood the Davidic line to be a focus of hope for the future. Although he has not specified what this hope entails, this can be called implicit messianism, Messiah. A hope that will bear fruit in the appearance of Christ. That's what they say this is foreshadowing. I could not agree more. Notice all the amazing things as we've looked at briefly in verses 10-13 to are said about God would actually be terrible news if you didn't have a mediator. The fact that He's the King. That He's great. That He has strength to do anything He wants to do with everyone at any time with no impediment. It's only because of Jesus and only because He is such an adequate Redeemer that you and I can take delight in God without being incinerated. The Gospel is the good news that the King not only just said, hey, let's have a prayer meeting. He went by Himself to suffer the wrath of God for us for the sins that we had committed. And He emerged victorious after that battle with sin in His resurrection and came back to us and said, now, nothing but green pastures and smooth path. I will mow down the mountains. I will lift up the valleys. I will make a way through the forest. If you come with Me, I'll take you into God's presence. This is our King. David is foreshadowing him. You see, the gospel is totally imp- I'm sorry, prayer is totally impossible if the gospel is not true. Every single time you and I ever pray personally, and every single time you or I ever pray corporately, every single prayer must flow through the mediator to be acceptable to God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and His Gospel victory, which should instantly make you want to pray more. Because every Christian, and I say that on purpose, every Christian wants to exalt Jesus as much as possible. And one of the most Jesus-exalting activities you or I could engage in is going through Christ to the Father. Which is what every single prayer does corporately or personally Which, rewind, is why Richard Owen Roberts said, I'm concerned for the salvation of people who for some little small inconvenience don't prioritize the corporate prayer meeting. It's one of the most Christ-exalting things you can do. Why would you not be there unless you're divinely prohibited? Like you break your leg, and so you can't come. I'll conclude by saying what I touched earlier, I am deeply, deeply encouraged by the work that the Lord is doing here to teach us to be a praying church. I am deeply encouraged. You know, in an exhortation way, we're always trying to prod each other to more and faster and deeper. And may we always do that because we have not arrived. But may we also at the same time not miss the work that God is doing among us. The fact that our sisters feel so comfortable to pray freely and openly, these great extolations of God. That this morning there was an exulting in God by no less than four people, I counted. Exulting in God by no less than four people that were even here. People were saying, thank you God for letting us be here. That's awesome. 
That's something for which we should praise God that we have that Spirit. And if you're not raptured with thankfulness that you're here, ask God to make you thankful. Because this is otherworldly. You don't get this in any other gathering of any other type than local churches that are covenanted together to seek the face of the Lord. Well, how can we grow in corporate prayer? There are eight of them, and they are fast. One is you get saved. Like a newborn baby who cries immediately as a natural expression of faith, so also, if you're a newborn Christian, you immediately begin to gasp in prayer to God. And if you don't have any kind of relationship with the Lord, it's because you're not a Christian and you need to be saved. You don't need to add a list of how to pray better to your life. You need to add Christ. Give yourself to Jesus who died and rose again for your salvation. Number two, corporately we should focus on the character of God and truth of the Gospel. I believe that's what happens in 1 Chronicles 29. God's character and through this prayer, David's position as king and the prayer he offers, the, the truth of the Gospel, the mediatorial love of God for us in Christ. So when you don't know what to pray corporately, give God praise for His character or pray specifically in adoration to Him for His Gospel love. Number three, corporately we should catch everybody else up in our prayer. That means the pronouns we use are important. We, us, our. Not me, my, I. It's not a time to catch up on our missed devotions from that week. Even if you had a terrible week devotionally, that doesn't mean you shouldn't audibly pray in a corporate prayer meeting. Because you don't earn points with Jesus through your good quiet times. And bring that in here, and now you're worthy to pray. You may have had a great week devotionally and pray nothing audibly, or a terrible week devotionally and pray uh, something very rapturously audibly. But the point is, we, us, our. You're trying to catch everybody up into your prayer. Fourth, practice brevity. It may be legendary or it may be true, but there's a story that goes that uh, one person prayed uh, a long, verbose prayer in the Metropolitan Tabernacle London when Spurgeon was the pastor. And after, who knows how long, legend has it in different time increments, but eventually Spurgeon goes and nestles up beside the guy and starts to elbow him and tell him that's enough, right? Because it's too long. He, he wasn't brief, and he, he killed the prayer meeting. And you'll kill the prayer meeting too if you pray super long prayers. But brief, specific, one thing, one praise, one petition, one thing, and then trust that God will put something else wonderful in somebody else's heart. Another thing related to that, number five, is pray, don't preach. Talk to God in the presence of men. That's what corporate prayer is. Not to men in the presence of God. That's preaching. The work of prophecy is in the category of what I'm trying to do now. The word of priestliness is Godward. Yes, other people are listening, but God is the audience. So don't preach a sermonette in your prayer. Just pray. Six, depend on the Holy Spirit. And now, i got to meddle in your business just a little bit as we close. This is what I mean by depend on the Holy Spirit, and I think this is the radically consistent biblical testimony. Do not ever assume when you come here that you will not pray out loud. I'm talking to four-year-olds. I'm talking to 94-year-olds. I'm talking to men, women, members, visitors. 
Do not ever assume that when you come, you will not pray out loud. I do think that most of us come in assuming we will not. Now let me give you the other side of that coin. Don't come in here assuming that you will. Don't prescript your prayer. We don't need to read the Valley of Vision in our prayer meeting, though that's a wonderful devotional guide. Let's depend on the Spirit. Actively. Immediately. Instead of walking in with one assumption or the other, let's trust that the ministry of the Spirit which is to exalt Jesus, will happen as we all depend on the Spirit's aid together, which is what Brian was preaching last week. Number seven, get desperate. Desperate. You don't have to teach a desperate person to cry out to God. If we see our need, we'll pray. Humility expresses itself in dependence, and dependent people ask for help. And if we're not needy, we're not humble. We could just say simply, humble people are praying people. Proud people don't pray. Well, the same thing applies to churches. Humble churches are praying churches. Proud churches don't pray. We need God. Get desperate. When our brothers and sisters, as was prayed about a minute ago in Syria and other places that are racked by war and devastation right now, when our brothers and sisters are meeting there for a prayer meeting, you can guarantee that they're desperate for God. I read an account this week about Lemuel Haynes' experience, which was nauseating, almost stomach-churning in how putrid it was, the, the horrendous activity of human slavery and the things he saw with his own eyes and how he saw a man decapitated for leading a prayer meeting. And do you know what? His kinsmen were warned, if you do this, we're going to do the same thing to you. They actually impaled his skull on a stake so that everybody would know, you better not do that. You know what the slaves did? Gathered around that pole and bowed together in prayer in front of the masters. And if you're desperate for God, I said earlier you crawl over broken glass, but these people did a little more than that. When you're desperate for God, you don't have anywhere else to go. You'll show up at the throne of grace and you'll find help in your time of need. And then finally, number eight, Let's learn to add our Amen, our Selah. I'm engaged for the most part with most of the prayers that happen. Not, not perfectly. Sometimes my mind wanders too. But during the prayer meeting, do you want to know how we can stay engaged? And I say let's practice this. Every single time somebody offers an audible prayer, let's corporately add our Amen. Only if you agree with it. If you want God to do what that brother or sister prays, or if you agree with what that brother or sister prays, then as soon as she says, or he says, thank You, Lord, for this in Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Together. And that just keeps us all moving along the same track together. Helping us all engage together. And that's a radically biblical theme. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16.24 Last word of the book. Amen. We find it again in Revelation 19. We find the Selahs through the Psalms where the whole congregation just stops and pauses and says, yes, God, you're good. So let's learn to add our amen or our Selah. We'll have to practice it and remind each other about it. Well, I've been warning you that I'm going to close, so I'll do it with this. William Law, Puritan, author, writer, pastor, said, you will never love a person so much as when you pray for them. You have a hard time loving anybody? Try prayer. You have a hard time loving the church? 
Try prayer. You have a hard time having the kindling of your own heart warmed at the fire of God's holy love for you in Christ? Try praying with God's people. And may God make of us the kind of congregation that 1 Corinthians talks about when it says, when lost people come in here, their head starts to spin. They're not impressed with us. And uh, for what it's worth, we're not a very impressive looking bunch. But they're just amazed that the God of heaven would visit such a people. There's a theme in Scripture of God dwelling and making His abode a place He feels comfortable at home where He rests. And if you look at the New Testament temple, shocking. It's you. It's us. This is where God loves to manifest His glory and rest His presence. Well, may it be so. Let's pray together. As uh, After I pray, you'll be invited to respond to the Lord's Supper. So you just come right after I pray or you remain seated in a spirit of prayerfulness. But use the time meaningfully to seek the face of the Lord whether you participate in the supper or remain seated. Father in Heaven, we ask that You would capture us with Your character, Your glory. That You would let us see in You what David saw and exploded back into praise to You. Father, we also ask that You would cause us to be so enamored with our Redeemer. The one that David just was the faint shadow and portrait of. That we see in hypercolor in Christ, the King, Priest, taking us into God's presence and making the sacrifice by Himself, being the temple that is acceptable to You and inviting us to come live our lives with You in Your presence. Oh Lord, as a church, we ask that You would grow us in corporate prayer, that You would teach us how to pray, not just about prayer, but like the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And if you want to blow up our schedules and rearrange our plans, then so be it. Because we desire your presence with us more than anything else. So make this church a place where your glory dwells. Where you're at home. Where you're comfortable. Where you make yourself known. Where lost people know for sure the living God is among those people. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.